I would like to quickly note that I have not received my test results from that uh, wine tasting course. So if I slip up on any of the wine knowledge today, I get excused from that. Uh, but Aaron, we're so happy to Kevin, have you. Thanks sorry, for joining Sorry, wait quick. Kevin, did you think at some point we were going to give you a test? <laughs> yep, I got tested. Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the suspendous, the amazing, the spectacular, the super cool power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorv. I'm Kevin. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. Have you heard of Liquid Death? Do you mean alcohol by Liquid Death? No. No, I don't mean alcohol. Damn, you got dark. It's like, do you mean cyanide? No, I mean the water brand, Liquid Death. The, the, uh, the water... Okay, now I'm starting to think I should prep you before I come in with these intros. But um, I'm going to give you like a second to Google it. Um, take your time. We can always cut it out. <laughs> All right, Liquid Death sparkling water yeah so you you've seen it before right you've seen inconvenience stores you've seen kids with it you've seen maybe even like a booth with it i have somewhere. It, actually really so, yeah oh okay you, you really did not prep oh. for this okay anyways liquid death is fascinating because it is a water brand that's what that is i know you look at it you see this tall boy canister it looks like a beer it, it really looks like someone's drinking beer but it's literally just water but the branding has a skull on it it looks cool and it was made for kind of like this alternative counterculture type group where they're kind of like i don't drink but i like this kind of cool like i like the can i like the social part of it i like this kind of cool branding experience and liquid death is entirely a creative company they literally took water which by the way you've heard me say this before the fact that water is bottled and sold is such an in amazing industry but the fact that they took water bottled it in a different type of packaging and sold it and they become really big on like instagram and they become a big like social thing and a lot of people really enjoy liquid death it's water in a can that that's its whole thing is amazing and you know what that is it's storytelling um here i am reading the original quote Don't. by grof on bottled water they put water in this little container because they think it can hold water um that's ah. one of many rants grof had on bottled waters because that's the innovation of bottled water like if you go back to like the 50s or older or I, I don't know the exact history but people weren't buying water in bottles the whole innovation and yes uh we've been corrected by this uh the um the conductor a friend of ours that we've dubbed the conductor on the show is huge into water he's like he you can give him five different brands and he like can taste the difference and he's like oh the heaviness and like he'll spend money on water in restaurants I'm not that person. I have so much respect for it, though. I'm like, to be able to try different brands of water and be like, that's good water, that's bad water, I'm, I'm in awe if people can do that. But anyways, this company is now valued at $700 million. Um, and this happened, like, very recently, like, in October, during this economic downturn. They raised 
a valuation of $700 million for water in a can. And it's all storytelling. Like, not only is it the branding of the bots they come in, the fact that you can buy a 12-pack of tall boy cans filled with water, the fact that it looks like alcohol, the fact that it has that cool skull, that their, their tagline is murder your first. The product storytelling is impeccable. But also, if you watch the advertisements, they make these really funny and cool and eye-catching advertisements. Like, they did, like, a taste test of liquid death versus the most expensive things you can buy. So they took, like, caviar and blended it up, and you had to taste liquid death or blended up caviar to see which you enjoyed more, and obviously it was going to be liquid death. So they do these funny commercials because their innovation, their strategy, their whole company is storytelling. And I think it's just such an interesting idea. Anyways, we've talked a lot about different kinds of drinks in this intro, totally by accident. But Kevin, who are we talking to today? Well, speaking of bottled drinks with tons of stories behind them, I think a lot of people have heard about wine tasting, have maybe been curious about why this whole thing exists what what is the whole wine culture uh what's that all about and funny enough i took uh, a wine tasting course a couple of months ago and ran into this very cool wine tasting instructor her name is erin kirscherman and um, she also happens to be uh, the managing editor of Wine Business Monthly. So we're very lucky to have her on the podcast to get into the storytelling behind wines, which is one of the most, you know, story driven types of uh, drinks out there, if you will. Yeah, it's such an interesting industry. And we've been talking to a lot of psychologists recently. So this is a nice little break into another really cool field of storytelling with a wine journalist. So let's get started. Today, we are so glad to be joined by Aaron Kirschman, um, who has been my wine tasting instructor. Um, I would like to quickly note that I have not received my test results from that uh, wine tasting course. So if I slip up on any of the wine knowledge today, I got excused from that. Uh, but Aaron, we're so happy to Kevin, have you. Thanks sorry, for joining really quick. us. Kevin, yes. did you think at some point we were going to give you a test? Did you think this was like a testing experience? Because we're not well, going to quiz you today. I know. We're, we're <laughs> asking a bunch of questions Yeah, for Aaron. But, you know, just in case, I, I want to excuse myself. Uh, but Aaron, um, to kind of kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Grove, for having me. Um, this is really exciting because my entire career has been based around storytelling. Um, I am very much that weird kid who knew exactly what she wanted to do with her life when she was eight years old. Um, I come from a journalism family. So my aunt was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, you know, Politico, the LA Times, and I followed in her footsteps. Um, so I studied journalism in college. I started writing for an insurance publication, which I can't recommend to anybody. It was soul sucking. And like by happenstance, ended up working at Wine Business Monthly. I've been there for 10 years and I'm now the managing editor. So that's kind of 
where I am today. And then just for fun, I decided it would be exciting to teach others about wine, about the thing that I've learned to love. And so that's how I met Kevin. And Kevin, I'm positive you passed that course. Or passed hopefully, that test. hopefully so. You did. <laughs> I did. Well, I love that. Uh, I love your. You see, what I love about our show is we talk to so many very unique storytellers. It's all about the art of storytelling, and you're definitely a guest. Where people are like, "What does that have to do with storytelling?" So the fact that you think about that so intensely and it's already a part of your system without us having to prompt you is really cool. Because not even all our guests do that. We have a lot of guests where they're first thinking about storytelling deeply in these conversations. But we love talking with someone who just gets it, gets it that the whole point of this, the whole point of this experience is we believe storytelling is everywhere. It's an essential part of humanity. It's an essential part of how we communicate, how we talk to ourselves, how we work with different things. So I love that you already know that it was an important part of your story. And there's always so many layers to a story too. And that's what I, I loved about journalism is that you can hear one story from one person, but you go to somebody else who was at the same event and they have a completely different story to tell you. Um, or you drink a glass of wine and you know there's so many different stories that go into that. And you know there, there's so much good truth in the world and so many things that we don't know and don't understand. So finding that is really exciting. You know, it's, it's such a really interesting thing you bring up about um, our minds as humans is so relational, right? Uh, You think about something, you see something, it reminds you of something, then next thing you know, you are having a panic attack about the thing you said on your seventh birthday. Um, Our mind's so relational in that sense that it makes so many of these connections. And, you know, we were joking before about how um, I love wine um, and it's something I really wish I knew more about. But the only thing I I have an order is the the drink I know my dad likes. And because of that, I've liked it. It's, what, it's the only thing I know. Some people ask me what I like. I tell them it, it's that drink. Um, and it's, it's solely because of my dad. And I like it because of that because there's so many memories and connections to it. And I think that's such an interesting thing about the actual rich history of these different types of alcohol. It's funny how relationship it is. Sometimes I describe it like um, what's your favorite baseball team is based on where you grew up it's it's so interesting about how deep some of these emotional connections are with alcohol or with these drinks based on you know just the experiences we've had or even just within your family business right there are some families who have been making wine in italy for 27 generations i mean talk about relational that is a lot of history that gets handed down to you and then having to carry that torch and share that love that, that's an incredible thing. I still can't believe that there are 27 generations who have been farming and making wine. It blows my mind a little bit. So, I mean, that that's really interesting, too. I, I would love to know, because like I, like I had mentioned earlier, I had just got back from Italy, and uh, we did London, Italy, uh, Milan, Venice, France. It was an amazing couple weeks. Um, and it's funny, because, you know, you really do feel in that environment and you taste some of this wine that's passed down from generation and it feels very unique. And I'm not sure how much of that is just, you know, the environment that you know, and the headspace you're in, but does environmental factors affect how you experience a glass of wine? So in short, yes. Um, <laughs> there have been studies that have shown um, you can take the same bottle of wine and have somebody taste it with their family at the dinner table 
and then two days later taste the same bottle of wine just at home alone or um, at a bar somewhere and your experience is going to be completely different you're going to think two very different things about wine and so it is incredibly environmental um you know the best story i can tell is there is this wine called gorgona and it is a wine made by the frescobaldi family out of italy and I had had it before, and I didn't think it was anything special. It was just a good white wine. But I knew that it was a hard wine to get, um, and it, they say it was special. But, you know, to me, it was just, you know, another glass of white. And then I went to the island where it's made. And Gorgona is actually a prison island off the coast of Livorno. And you can't go there by boat. You have to go with special permission. Um, it's, you can see it from afar, but you, you never really could just go up to the shores and lay out on the beach there. Um, but they brought out a bunch of press to this prison island to show exactly what they were doing with these inmates. And these are inmates who are toward the end of their sentence. Um, they're about to go back out into the world and they need a skill. They need something that is going to get them a job and an income so that they don't end up back in prison. So they teach them how to bake, how to cook, how to hospitality, how to serve. And they also teach them how to grow wine grapes and make the wine themselves. And we actually got to talk to some of these prisoners. And, you know, one man was telling me that this makes him really proud because he can tell his six-year-old daughter that his dad is out making wine. She can tell her friends, my dad's a winemaker, not my dad's in prison. And I mean, even telling that story now, I'm still getting the chills because the way he said it, he was just so proud that he was going out into the world with a skill and he can go be with his family and he can go make an income and never have to miss another minute of his daughter's life. And now all of a sudden that, that wine tastes so much better. It tastes fresher, livelier. It's more vibrant and has so much more citrus to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, of course, your environment and knowing the story behind it is going to affect how you taste, right? I mean, are they going to make the most elevated, exciting, high quality wine on a prison island? No, I mean, it's bare bones winemaking. But knowing that they're learning all of this so that they can go out into a real production cellar, a real winery and do make that high quality wine. Oh, God, that is so cool. Now the wine tastes better. You know, it's funny because we... Um... We had just recorded with someone who, uh, the episode's not out yet, but we were talking about this idea of luxury brands and this idea that it's not like this is the most sturdy bag you've ever bought in your life, but it's the brand. It's the attachment, these stories that we've told about the brand that get this level of enjoyment. And uh, we talked a lot about the experience of even buying a bag like that. You go into the store, it's a whole thing with a person and like, you're bombarded with all these different sensory experiences and it's fascinating the value we get as humans just through those stories through the story about how the wine is made the story about the label the story about even the pricing story and the stories we tell ourselves and how that drives our experience of different things like in the luxury goods example something we talked about was this idea of like people who uh, who have like worked way hard and like splurge on something that's going to give them value and give them like a symbol of they've made it so I think it, it's fascinating in all walks of life and all things like this about how, and with wine, it's such a, um, it's a visceral experience. It's a taste experience. It's a fleeting experience where it's like 
you the story behind it if you know something's expensive you know something has a rich bad story you kind of feel that history not even it's i'm not saying like if you give someone a a glass of wine from this place and don't tell them anything they're going to taste it like oh my god prisoners made this but (laughs) knowing the story it it changes how we experience it and i think that it's such a fascinating way our mind works with wine especially Yeah, and it's funny how much our mind can play tricks on us, too. Um, Mm -hmm. This is something that I've been paying a lot of attention to lately because I do believe that you can have just as much enjoyment from a $4.99 bottle of Gruner Veltliner from Trader Joe's as you can a $300 bottle of Colt Cabernet. Um, It's really all up to what you tell yourself. Um, You know, I'm not going to buy a $300 Colt Cabernet. I'm a journalist. I don't make that much money. But I also don't think that that's not my style, right? I was telling Kevin's class, my house wine is a Gruner Veltliner from Trader Joe's. I walk in and they see me coming and they just go straight to the back, grab a case and bring it out. Like, so I don't have to buy the individual bottle. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can, I mean, there's, this is what I really think is fascinating about wine. There's this visceral experience, like you were mentioning, um, and there's, a romanticism and an art and storytelling. And then there's also science behind it. And so there have been studies done where, you know, they have the same group of people blind tasting wine, and it is the exact same wine in all glasses. But they tell you that one is $4.99, one is $10.99, one is $200 or whatever it is. And the people will automatically think that the $200 wine is better. It's the same stuff. And it's really fascinating to dive into that and see just how much our minds and our preconceived notions trick us. Yeah. And I think that really explains really well uh, why, you know, wine tasting has been made into such, just such an experience overall. You know, it, it makes it more than just you're going into a store and you're, you know, buying a bottle of alcohol. You're, you're really, you know talking to the the people who are making the wine and they're introducing to you how they're making that a history of this place and, and all that. So it can actually end up making us feel better about the wine they're presenting to us. Um, and, you know, from there, something else I've been really interested in about the wine tasting experience is um, how have you seen as, you know, someone who works in wine journalism, how have you seen the wine tasting experience get affected by the pandemic, a time when you know people couldn't necessarily go in person to experience that, to have that conversation. I know some that have been, you know, doing the same stuff online. Is that the same? How have you know winemakers reacted to that? Yeah, it's it's been a little bit crazy. Um, so when the pandemic first started, um, everybody freaked out because direct to consumer sales are a huge part of a winery's revenue. And if you don't have tourists coming out to Napa or to Sonoma, how do you justify them buying a $50 or $75 bottle that they've never tasted before? Um, How do you get them to take that leap? So what the more creative wineries did early on, and now it's standard fare for absolutely everyone, is they moved to a virtual tasting. So right now we're meeting virtually, you know, I'm up here in Sonoma, you guys are down in in Silicon Valley and we could be across the world. I mean, I almost did this from LA at one point. Um, 
they could ship the wine to you and tell you the story, right? Over a conversation, they could ask your questions, they can show you photos and video and all that. And it worked for a little while, um, you know, because we had nothing else. You know, we had to settle for Zoom tastings, we had to settle for this, but there's nothing that beats actually being at the winery, looking out over the hills, talking about climate, understanding just exactly what it takes for those grapes to grow and to be put into a bottle. Um, and I, I love Italy. So I actually just got back from Sicily. And so I'm, I, I'm sorry to all the other wine regions of the world, but all of my examples are probably going to be Italy right now. But I never really understood Amarone and Valpolicella until I went there, until I saw the hills the incredible wind that blows through that area and the humidity, which is nothing like I have ever experienced before. And now I'm starting to understand why drying out these grapes is such a hassle and why it doesn't happen all the time and why Amarone tastes the way it does. And it's a polarizing wine. Uh, you know, you either really love it or you really hate it. It's very raisiny, very fig, prune, because they dry out the fruit. And just the amount of effort and amount of perfect things that have to happen in nature for that for that bottle to make it there. I can't see that through a Zoom tasting. I can't see that through a photo or a video. You have to be there and experience it. So yeah, it, it really did affect wineries here um, because our, our prices are so much higher than the rest of the world for one. And our consumers are less educated. And I say that for lack of better words, because we're, we're at a newer stage in our wine journey. Um, European countries have been tasting and drinking wine with dinner for, you know, centuries. This is all brand new to us. We stopped with prohibition and had to start all over again. So we're still learning wine. We still need somebody to be there to tell us why hills are good for um, growing grapes or why too much rain is bad or which direction the vines need to face. Here's my quiz for you, Kevin. Which direction <laughs> do the vines need to face? Uh, they should best be southeast facing um, steep slopes uh, if you're in the northern hemisphere, I believe, because, you know, that gets your exposure yeah. to the sun. Uh, and um, <laughs> uh, you, but also you don't want too much heat. There's also exactly. water and stuff, but yeah. Let's have that on record. That was amazing. Yeah. Please keep testing him Please, throughout this entire thing. I take it back what I said at the beginning. Please test him throughout this entire thing. It would make it so much more enjoyable. Um, I only said it a thousand times in class, so I was yeah. hoping it made it quite through. But right here. <laughs> um, I want to ask a really random question. I'm going to ask a lot of really random questions, and I apologize for this. Go for it. But uh, you mentioned this kind of offhandedly there. You mentioned... And I just find it so fascinating. I don't think it has anything to do with the show. But you mentioned prohibition resetting kind of uh, the North, I guess, North America's kind of palettes almost. Can you explain a little bit more what you meant by that? Yeah. So um, when I can go way back. So I'm going to try to do this in an abbreviated version because I love history. In the 1800s, and particularly with the gold rush, we had a lot of migrants coming to the United States, Italians, French, etc. And with them, they brought vinifera or the grapevines that we use to make wine. 
Um, and so they planted it. If you go to Amador County in California now, you can still see some of those old vines. They are still around. They are not making wine. They're there for decoration at this point. Um, but, you know, we, we had started on our journey. We had a lot of institutional knowledge from cultures who had been growing grapes forever. It was just part of their lifestyle of, of who they are. When prohibition came around, um, it was obviously illegal to sell alcohol. So those grapes came out of the ground and instead farmers planted things like almonds or pistachios or citrus because they had to make a living, right? They couldn't make money growing grapes. A few people did. Um, there was this really clever workaround where they would send you the grape juice and then on the package, right? Do not add X amount of yeast to this and let's sit at this temperature because it will turn into alcohol. Um, and somehow <laughs> or another, they got away with that. Um, and some still stuck around because they were selling sacramental wine. So because it was religious, it was fine. Um, but we lost a lot of acreage. We lost a lot of movement, a lot of growth. People turned to moonshine um, or other beverages that weren't alcohol. So by the time prohibition ended, um, we were now in depression, then we went to war, you know, we lost a couple decades of growing grapes and making wine and learning from that process, learning what grows well everywhere. Um, so it wasn't really until the 60s and the 70s that the industry started to kick off again. And by then, you know, we had moved on, we had a completely different taste. Um, you know, Americans are notoriously sweet. All of our food has way too much sugar. And we started, we wanted that with wine. You don't have that much sugar in Europe. Um, now we're moving away from that because that's just the wine journey and natural wine progression. Um, but yeah, that set us back at least a few decades. And we're in a new wine region. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think uh, it, that's that's so interesting because wine especially and if you talk to people about bourbon and whiskey it's the same thing where it's about his heritage right these winemakers this wine a lot of wine is about heritage it's about decades and not decades centuries of knowledge base being passed down these little techniques drying at this time cutting the grapes this time doing this at this time that aren't really in robots many people do it different ways and it changes the taste this is a heritage industry so it's so interesting how like that disruption changed it and how it changed American taste and it's how it affected how we tasted, how it affected American wine. I was talking to Kevin about this the other day. I was in an Indian restaurant um, and um, I had ordered food for pickup over the phone. I ordered, I think it was tandoori chicken. And then the chef comes out and to me because I was waiting for the food. And he's like, she's like, oh, I have to remake your chicken because I didn't realize you were Indian and uh, you should have said on the phone Indian style because... <laughs> She makes it with a ton of sugar for her non-Indian guests. So she's like, "Next, I'm going to remake your chicken. Next time on the phone, say Indian style. <laughs> Amazing experience. Uh, I'm speechless at that one. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was also, I have another random question because this is just so fascinating to me. But is there any correlation to... Um, the drinking age in America and how we experience and grow up with wine. Because I feel like in Europe as well, people start drinking wine so much earlier, even with different age restrictions. A lot of places like that's everything but wine. 
uh, does the strictness of the drinking age, has that affected how we've grown up in our taste palette of wine? Absolutely. And you can thank prohibition for that one again. Um, our wine culture is directly res a result of the fact that we were founded by Puritans. Um, we have always looked at alcohol as a vice, as something bad. Um, and so when we raise our drinking age to 21, now it becomes something taboo. It's not something you have with dinner anymore. It is something you drink to get drunk. It is something you used to rebel with in college. Um, and so we tend to go for the things that are very high alcohol or will get us drunk the fastest or don't necessarily know how to incorporate the wine with the food. Um, in Europe, wine is not something you drink to get drunk. If you want that, you can have absinthe. That's fine. But kids are drinking wine with meal. They'll have a sip of mom or dad's glass and they have it in moderation over a very long dinner. Um, I think this is probably the biggest hindrance to the American wine culture is the way in which we eat. So there's this fascinating book called The Culture Code by uh, Clotaire Pie. And for Americans, food is fuel. We eat something quickly to give us more calories, more energy so that we can go back to work. We are a very work-driven culture. But in Europe, food is family. They sit down to dinners that last hours. The, the French can take three or four hours to eat dinner. The Italians, I mean, even longer, my goodness. Um, you don't start dinner until seven, eight o'clock at night when everybody's home and relaxed. And then you're just sitting there drinking your wine with your food and enjoying family. So now wine isn't something taboo. It's something that brings back memories of being with mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, your aunts and uncles and cousins, right? Um, so there's more of an acceptance of it. Um, there's more an understanding of what it really can be. I mean, to go back to our earlier topic, it brings back memories of your family. So I think, I honestly think it's how we eat here in the States that is one of our biggest hindrances, not just the legal drinking age. It's how we consume that's amazing. And it ties right back to storytelling, prohibition, the drinking age, this idea that this is a taboo thing. This is something to be done inside college dorms and not at bars, which leads to a lot of very dangerous stuff. <laughs> but it's this, this idea of taboo and it, this idea of it's a rebellion. It's alcohol is a vice. It's one of the vices. And uh, yes, 100%, a lot of alcohol is, a lot of levels, a lot of drinking levels. There's a lot of negatives there, but when you bucket it all on that one thing and you're telling that one story, of course it's going to play a very shaded, different directional version in your life because that's the story you've been told all your life. So it's, again, it ties back into storytelling and the way we interact with something that is has such a rich and beautiful heritage. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's we're having a discussion in the wine industry now about how we reach new consumers. How do we get the next generation to start drinking more wine? Because sales are just tanking right now. And it boils down to storytelling. We have made wine out to be this fancy thing. It's this prestigious, snobby thing. But if you look at spirits commercials, if you look at beer commercials, they're not waxing poetical about the, the taste of wine. 
they're showing friends floating on a river or on the beach or getting together to celebrate somebody's new job or the kid they just had or a new house or whatever it is. It's much more um, social and they're making giant strides because they're not trying to be pretentious like we are. They're telling a much better story. Um, I've been seeing a commercial for a wine, which not necessarily my favorite, but they're at least trying to do that, right? They're showing a couple on a date and making sort of sexual innuendos over a glass of wine. But God, finally, somebody's telling a decent story about wine that isn't, you know, the same old, we've been growing these grapes for so long and this is what it tastes like. They're saying, this is a wine you drink on a date. And I think that is far more effective than what we the stories we have been telling so far. It was fascinating. I it definitely. I, I was telling Kevin. Um, I was. I, I've been listening to a lot of country music recently, <laughs> um, and beer has such a huge place in country music. Right. There's a song that I, someone who I can't remember his name right now, uh, but it's it's like it's about how doesn't matter what kind of problems you have, friendship, work wise, nothing. Literally nothing can can't be overcome with a cold glass of beer, and I'm like, it's amazing these stories that America has that we are told through. It's so ingrained in the culture. So beer just has such a different relationship to our uh, American lives than wine does, and I 100 percent agree. It's the messages, it's the fin two songs, it's the commercials. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to find a way to get out of that pretentious egalitarian story because you know this is something that i tell all of my students we would not have a wine industry if it were not for white zinfandel but everybody in the wine industry turns their noses up at it you know is it my kind of wine to drink no i grew out of that a few years after college but i will never tell somebody that they can't drink it if that's what you like drink it i don't care you know keep buying wine um but there's so much about it that we have made difficult you know and i admit i'm part of that i'm a wine judge you know i say whether something's good or not um it's a fine line we're walking Mm -hmm. and and speaking of kind of the richness and history of wine and the complexity of it I, i do want to get into you know this whole system of standards that's out there for for wine tasting um why are there such, you know, a complicated set of standards for judging the quality of the wine? And how did people even decide and agree on just what's a good quality wine? Um, through a lot of argument, mostly, mm. um, and a lot of fighting and somebody saying mine's better than the other. Um, no, not really. I'm being a little bit glib there. <laughs> it's, you know, we have the set of standards to ensure that the wine you are drinking is not faulty because faults um, can really destroy a wine. Um, so that's the first thing we look for, right? You don't want um, some, you don't want your wine to smell like damp cardboard or chlorine. And that's a result of TCA. Um, you don't want your wine to smell stale or dull because where's the fun in that? So what we're looking for when we are judging and and why we have this set of criteria is basically to make sure that first and foremost, there are no faults, that there are some aromas, Um, the more complex, the better, because you want to be able to stick your nose in and, you know, have fun listing off descriptors. Because if you just 
and I'm going to throw Pinot Grigio under the bus here. If you were to swirl a glass of Pinot Grigio, you're pretty much going to get apple and pear and maybe some lemon and that's about it. But instead, you can be swirling a glass of Riesling and now all of a sudden there's mango and petrol and blossom and honeysuckle and all the and that's so much more fun right you you want to be intrigued by what you're drinking um so that's the second thing and then the other is just to make sure that on the palate you have balance meaning all the different parts of the wine are working together so the tannins aren't overpowering the acid isn't overpowering the alcohol isn't overpowering but somehow they all kind of work together to make drinking the wine pleasurable and so at the heart of it that's what all the standards are for um so when i judge wine and you know it's funny we were just having this discussion because i was in sicily to judge a wine competition you know silver medals go to those wines that are not faulty and are you know good wines they are wines that if somebody served it to me i wouldn't turn it back basically right they, they were well made a gold is something that if somebody served it to me i would be very happy with right there's some complexity of aroma um there's it's refreshing on the palate when i've finally swallowed all of the wine like i can still taste the fruit right everything about it is pleasurable and then a grand gold is a wine that I write on my notepad and say, I need to go find a bottle of this and buy some because it is absolutely special. And so that's how we kind of look at it, at least at the competition that I'm uh, a part of. That's how we give out our medals, because in the end, the wine has to be delicious. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. Isn't there a level of subjectivity there? And wouldn't that mean there's only like a rarefied few people um that are qualified to judge wine because kind of their subjectives have shaped an industry? So it, wine is inherently subjective, yes, but there are objective things that you can look at, right? So I say white Zinfandel isn't my style of wine, but I can smell it and I can see that it has really intense aromas and that's all. that's a good thing. I can taste it and the sugar and the acid are in balance. Um, I can tell you that it has a long finish. Now, is it my style? Absolutely not. I'm not going to buy it, but it is a, it's a very good wine at the end of the day. So anybody can train their palate. Anybody can objectively look at a wine. You just, it's really hard for some people to remove the subjectivity. It is really hard for them to remove the personal preference. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in wine competitions, it's a lot easier to remove personal preference because the wines are tasted blind. You don't know what it is. Um, you know, if somebody were to pour a white Zinfandel, I wouldn't know. I mean, I could guess, but I'm judging specifically what's in the glass, not what I think it is. And so that's when it, it gets really difficult when you're doing wine uh, tasting notes is like you see in magazines. Um, when they do know what the wine is, because a lot of preconceived notion can come in. You know, some of the stuff will be tasted blind, but you never really know. Um, and that's usually the best way to do it because in the end, it's more about being able to remove personal bias. Those are the best judges. Those are the best tasters, the ones who can look at a wine for what it is, not what it should be. Yeah, those internal stories that we've, dedicated to different wine brands and different things based on our personal preferences. That makes a lot of sense. 
we've learned so much fascinating stories and insights from you today, Aaron. But to be mindful of your precious time, we have this closing segment called Suspenders. It works like this: we ask you a random, fun question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever, and you give us any fun, random answer you feel like. Okay. Question of the day is: What is something you thought would be a great idea, but was terrible when you actually tried it? Oh God. <laughs> um, what wasn't a terrible idea? Uh, <laughs> you know. I have had a lot of ideas, and maybe they seemed bad at first, but in the end, they worked out.、Um, I have had a lot of good things happen in my life, and it's because I took the leap. And it was hard for a little while,、um, but there's nothing that I really, truly regret.、Um, I don't know. Maybe parking my car in the tenderloin—that might be the one thing I regret because you know. I had an iPod stolen out of there, but、uh, I mean, like, yeah, I'm old, guys. <laughs> but oh, I don't. That is a hard one. Why are you giving me such a tough question? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine.、Uh, we we take any answers to that, so your answer is perfectly acceptable. Yes,、um, and I like it. It's a nice way to end it、uh, on the kind of a positive note that. Things are weird. Things are different. Sometimes something that seems like a good idea turns out to be bad, and then turns out to be good again. Life. <laughs> Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the cool insights we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we sat down with a wine journalist to talk about all the cool things about wine, and I got to ask a bunch of random wine questions, and it was fun because you know we love wine here at the LSBT Pod. Yeah, it ended up being just me stalling pretty much for Gorov to come up with another random question for Aaron, but、uh, this was a fun conversation. It was cool, very.、Uh, Informative,、um, and I think one of the many interesting takeaways、um, I got from our chat is that、um, wine kind of needs a new story. Aaron kind of walked us through this, you know, how wine is sort of perceived by the general public,、uh, at least here in the United States. Uh, is that it has become more of a high society kind of hobby. It doesn't feel as、uh, relatable or appealing to the younger population or to the general、uh, population. And and you know we also talked about how beer, the image of beer, is much more casual, much more accessible. And that's、uh, country song that you talked about it as well.、Uh, wine sort of needs、uh, a renovation of its image in that sense, and needs a new source. So it'll be interesting to see how wine can kind of the wine industry can reinvent this product because there is a lot of very interesting story and history built into that, and there's a lot of different types of wines with very interesting flavors. 
Yeah, you know, the interesting part about that with storytelling is this idea of, you know, different cultures have different stories and how different times in your life, different things serve your story. Like the alcohol you're drinking in college is very different than the alcohol you're drinking when you're older. The alcohol you drink at parties are very different than the alcohol you drink at dinners, right? And how how all this connects, not only based on where you're from, where you're currently living, the drinking age, um, all of these different things intersect. And you brought up the country song. And I'm and recently I've been listening to a lot of country music. And it's made me want to drink more beer because it's a huge part of the music. It's a huge part of saying, hey, if you if you have an ice cold beer, your life will be like this. You'll be happier. You'll be more relaxed. All you need is ice cold beer. So again, you, you talk about this reinvention in the wine industry and how the wine industry has to get better at telling stories. But it, it's a few different industries too. The wine industry needs to influence other industries to talk about wine in a more positive way as well. It's about the feeling. It's about the experience. So if we're telling a lot of stories in America through music that beer makes you happy, that an ice cold beer lying on the dock is the secret of happiness, that's going to be how you feel because these stories we tell ourselves about beer, about alcohol, influence how we actually experience the alcohol. And that's what we talked to her about too, about different types of wine about how knowing the story, the background behind it, knowing the feelings it's supposed to integrate changes your actual experience of it, regardless of the dollar value. So I think this idea that is really important, this idea of how different stories and different information that you're given when you taste wine affects actually how you experience it, which is so important when you uh, build any product like going back to the intro, Liquid Death. By creating this experience, the product itself is not the only thing that matters. Storytelling is everything. That's a whole thing and here. As <laughs> you try to come up with how to create the next best experience for people, this has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you listen and also leave us a comment or review to let us know what you're thinking also follow us on uh, instagram at lfsptpod linkedin linen suit and plastic tie i'll see you next time you know when you're really hungry but you have no food in your fridge so you just go and start eating a raw onion and then realize that's a dumb idea and you stop and then you go and you're like damn